Oh, good morning, everybody. Good to be with you again on this Lord's Day. Uh, if you'll turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, we continue our series on the Ten Commandments. Today is the, the last commandment. We're looking at the Tenth Commandment. And over the last few months, we've been going through a series um, that have looked at every single one of these commandments. Um, and today we're looking at you shall not covet. And this commandment is, is different from all the other commandments that concern our relationship with our neighbors. Now, this is the only one that cannot be seen by our neighbors. Because only God knows when we break this specific commandment. Uh, we can't keep it hidden from God, however, because we know that He, he knows the truth. Because as the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel, the Lord does not see us as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So today we're going to look at why we covet. And we're going to look at some of the um, ways that we can overcome covetousness. But the source of all covetousness is really desire. And we're going to look at whether it's a good desire or whether it's a, a bad desire. Um, but it's all about the state of our hearts. And more than any of these commandments, this one is, a di is, is directly addressed to the heart, to the state of our, of our heart. And if you consider these commandments as a whole, you'll see that all of the commandments, with the exception of the first and the last, have to do with actions that other people can observe. So as I said, today we're going to look at this um, command that deals with the issues of our of our heart. So if you turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, we'll read from verse 1 to verse 17. Exodus 20, verse 1 to 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the, the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless, who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and that all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray this morning. 
Father, we do thank you for all that you've been teaching us over the past few weeks concerning these Ten Commandments. Thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself to us and showing us more and more of your character. And that is our desire today, Lord, to, to, to know you more. I pray that it would be our desire. I pray everybody in this room would have that intention this morning to be here so that they would know you better. Father, thank you for the truths in the songs that we have sung. But we know, Lord, that for those of us who, who don't know you, it is not well with our souls. For those of us, Lord, who have sinned and are living in sin, it is not well with our souls. And only those, Lord, who are right with you this morning and are worshipping you as you've prescribed in your scriptures are joyous people. And those who are not coveting, that are delighting themselves in you, are those people who are enjoying you and it is well with their souls. So we pray this morning, Father, that you would help us to examine our hearts, that the Spirit of God would examine us even before we take part in Holy Communion, Lord, that the Word of God would show us and reveal to us areas in our lives that we need to get right with you. So we pray today that your Spirit would do the work amongst us, especially in this very sensitive subject of covetousness, Lord, that we would not switch off our, our eyes and our ears and our hearts to the truth of, of your Word, but rather, Lord, we would allow the Spirit to convict us and that He would conform us into the image of your dear Son. Lord, we pray this prayer not for our sakes, Lord, but for your glory this morning. Father, we pray that we would be a people that reflect the God that has been revealed to us in the Scriptures, the God who has told us He is a holy, holy God. So, Father, this morning we pray that you would change us and mold us into the image of your Son. For the sake of your great name, we ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, my family and I watched the, the movie The Greatest Showman um, with Hugh Jackman. If you haven't seen it, I would recommend it. But one of the reviews said that the movie could easily have been based on the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you see it, you will understand what I'm saying. But one of the songs in this movie speaks very clearly to the heart of my message on covetousness. And the song is sung by the Swedish opera singer Jenny Lind and it expresses her excitement following her successful American debut but also the emptiness and void that her fame and fortune are unable to fill. And here are the lyrics to her song, Never Enough. I'm sorry I'm not going to sing it, you just have to imagine the, imagine the, the tune, okay? All the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough, never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it will never be enough, never be enough for me. Never enough, never, never, never for me, for me, never enough, never enough, never enough. You know, all truth is God's truth, isn't it? We just need to keep our ears and our, our eyes open. And even in this Hollywood movie, 
The struggle of covetousness is clearly defined here, even in the song. But this commandment primarily focuses on the attitude of our hearts, as we spoke about earlier. And if God were to expose what was really inside our hearts, how would you do with respect to this commandment this morning? So my first point this morning is from Exodus chapter 20 verse 17. Instructions that forbid covetousness. Instructions that forbid covetousness. And the general command we see in verse 17 this morning is you shall not covet. Of course this is a Hebrew word. Um, The word covet means to desire. It means to take pleasure in something. And to covet doesn't necessarily involve something evil. I've heard people say in the past, I covet your prayers. There's nothing wrong with that. They are simply asking us, they desire for us to, to pray for them. There's nothing evil with that. But here in the context, it is defined. Here in the Ten Commandments, covetousness is defined for us. And it refers clearly to an inappropriate longing, an inappropriate desire for that which belongs to our neighbors. And this is an evil wanting, an evil lusting after something that doesn't belong to us. Now think for a moment about that. We already know that God forbids us from from stealing from our neighbors. But here he, he takes the matter to a much deeper level and commands us to not even let ourselves want what belongs to our neighbors. And most people would think that there's, there's nothing wrong with simply wanting what belongs to our neighbors. Just as long as we don't do something about it, as long as we don't steal it. But God sees it differently. God looks into our hearts. And He forbids us in this commandment from ever wanting something that doesn't belong to us. He does not wish to look into our hearts and find us coveting what He has given to somebody else. And the initial commandment here in verse 17, as I said, uses the, the Hebrew word shamad, shamad, which means to delight in. But this repeated commandment is found also in Deuteronomy. If you would turn there with me. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 21, the repeated command says this, And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And the word desire, translated in the Hebrew, is the word ever, which translates to covet or to wish for. So we can see how this, this word is, is being extrapolated here. But the third time this word is used in the Hebrew, the way we've translated it in covet in, in our English is found in Jeremiah chapter 6. If you return to Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 13, it says, For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. And the words unjust gain in the Hebrew is the word batza. 
And that means to be greedy. It means given to covetousness. So our English word is simply covet. But we can see from the Hebrews it's used in three different ways in three different contexts. But when we put them all together, we get the picture. We get the idea. And once we begin to delight in something, we start to wish for it. We start to want it. And when we wish for it long enough, we become greedy. And we must have it. And often at any cost. And we move from greed to seeking dishonorable or self-absorbing gain. You can see this, this process. And the Apostle James talks about it in the New Testament. He wrote about it in his epistle in James chapter 1. Turn there with me if you would, James chapter 1. In verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Look here at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. This is something that comes from you, not from God. Look at verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We see that process. Now the eye looks a little too long at something, and then the mind admires it, starts to delight in it, and then the will moves over to, to pursuing it, to going after it. And then eventually the body, or the axe, move to possess it. And it gives birth to sin. When it is grown, it brings forth death. And the God who loves us and, and made us for himself is really warning us that he is displeased to look into our hearts and discover that we are wanting other things more than him. That we are desiring other things more than him. This is really a, an attitude of a heart. As I've said earlier, this is a sinful attitude when we start to cover things to replace our delight in God. He does not want us to covet what He has given to somebody else. And that is defined here in Exodus chapter 20. He doesn't want our desires to turn our hearts away from Him. And that's exactly what Satan wants. And we'll look at that later on. That is exactly what Satan wants. Turn with me to, to Mark chapter 7. This is the, the general idea behind this commandment. And Jesus tells us here in Mark 7, For from within, in verse 21, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come, all these evil things come from within. And they defile a per per person. These are the things that come out of our heart. And covetousness is clearly mentioned in that, in that list. But back to Exodus chapter 20, in verse 17, we see that this command is, is made very specific. 
And it's given a context as well. God says that we are not to covet, number one, our neighbor's house. Our neighbor's house. Obviously, this is the place where your neighbor lives. And perhaps conveyed in this prohibition against coveting his position in the community or his, his, his station in, in life. And attached to that in Deuteronomy, in the reference which we read earlier, is the command not to cover his field, not to cover perhaps the, the place where he works. And implied in that is the prohibition against coveting his means of making an income, his means of maintaining his standard of living. And we can understand that clearly in our own context today. We mustn't be coveting people's positions. We mustn't be coveting the place where they are, are living, looking at the Joneses and wishing that we had what they had. In the last week when we looked at the sin of a false witness, we turned to 1 Kings and we examined the example of the wicked king Ahab and her, his, his wife Jezebel. We remember that sad, sinful story that all started with Ahab coveting another man's field. It was another man's field. It was his livelihood. He had many of his own. He was the king. But he wanted this specific field. Remember when Ahab did not openly go, he didn't, he didn't get what he had asked for, but he didn't go and openly steal the man's vineyard away from him. Remember, he, he moped about it because his heart was filled with a sinful desire for what God had given to somebody else. Perhaps you remember the rest of the story. Ahab's evil wife Jezebel arranged for, for Naboth's death and once he was out of the way she told her husband, Arise! Take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. For Naboth is not alive, he's dead. And off he went. He scurried along to take possession of another man's field. It's a horrible example. An example of this particular command. We're not to covet our neighbor's house. The second specification there is that God also says that we're not to covet our neighbor's wife. And I think implied in that is women are not to covet her neighbor's husband. And of course we have a tragic example of that in the scriptures as well in the experience of King David, isn't it? David was taking an evening stroll along the roof of his palace. And many people spent time on the roof of their homes in those days, much like they do here in our Arab culture. And as he was looking around, he saw a woman named Bathsheba. And she was bathing. And she was the wife of one of his finest soldiers. But that soldier was away. And Bathsheba was bathing. And David called his aides to himself and said, who is that woman? He pointed her out. Who is that woman? And asked them to get her. We know the rest of the story. As he coveted her, he committed adultery. And then that led to all different types of other sins. Even murder. As he sent Uriah to the, to the front line so that he would die. So that he would die. For the rest of his life, David paid grievously for this dreadful result of having coveted another man's wife. That's where it all started. It all started in his heart. It all started in his mind. And it conceived death in the end. 
God goes on to tell us in this commandment that we're not to covet our, our neighbor's male servant or female servant. We're not to covet those who assist our neighbors in maintaining their, their, their lives. And maybe it is their employees as well. Um, a modern parallel to that would be one business owner or manager who covets a particular employee of somebody else and seeks to steal them away or take them away. And the scriptures tell us we are, to, we are, we are not to covet our neighbor's ox or donkey. Now, I don't think many of you have oxes or donkeys today, but that was very common in these days. It was a form of transport. It was an instrument that was used to help them earn a living um, or it was there just to help them to be more comfortable in their, in their travels. And this, of course, could be translated as our modern forms of transport or tools or supplies that we use to make a living or even recreational. We're not to be coveting those things that don't belong to us. They belong to somebody else. And the Bible sums the matter up by making a universal statement at the end of that verse. Just in case we, we missed something. <coughs> Just in case we try to justify our coveting. It tells us in that verse, we're not to covet anything that belongs to our neighbor. So there's a context here. Coveting, desiring is not wrong as long as we're not coveting something that doesn't belong to our neighbor. That doesn't belong to our neighbors. So turn with me to, to Luke chapter 12. We're going to spend the rest of our time looking at a classic example in the New Testament of coveting. In Luke chapter 12. And just some background here in this passage. Jesus has been teaching his disciples about the providence of God. How God takes care of his children. He's been teaching his disciples to fear God and not to fear man, not to be anxious about the things of tomorrow. And he urges his disciples to be strong and determined to acknowledge him before all other people. And he says that he would reward them for that. And then he says in these verses, let's read these verses in Luke chapter 12, verse 13 to verse 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of of his possessions. So the whole time the Lord has been teaching his disciples and others that were listening about this wonderful doctrine of his providence, this man has been thinking about his family inheritance. There's a dispute going on about the family inheritance. And the words that are coming out of this out of this man's mouth are revealing really what is inside his heart. And his conversation is revealing his preoccupations in this life. He's not too concerned about God. Remember, folks, this is, this is Jesus speaking here. 
He's not really concerned about what Jesus is speaking. He's rather concerned about his possessions. And in response to this man's question to him about the inheritance, Jesus turns to his disciples in verse 15. And he says to his own disciples, he says, Take care and be on guard against covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This is a very interesting conversation, a very interesting exchange that is taking place here. This man says to Jesus, So I have a, I have a problem here. He puts up his hand. He kind of interrupts the whole class here. Puts up his hand to change the subject altogether. I have a problem in my family. There's, there's a dispute. And Jesus, please I need you to settle it. Now this wasn't uncommon in the day. People would often go to rabbis to resolve family disputes. They trusted rabbis. Rabbis were respected. They were to be men of integrity. They were to be their religious leaders. So they would often go to a rabbi to, to help with similar types of disputes. The rabbis were people who knew God's word and they should have been wise enough to be able to have, have done that. So it made perfect sense for this man to, to be asking this question. But it was an inappropriate question at the wrong time. This man is in the presence of, of Christ. He could have asked Jesus anything. But the one thing that is on his mind, the one thing that is on his heart, more than anything else in this world, is his inheritance. Is his potential money, potential income. And what does that say about the man's soul? The very question shows what the man really thought was important. What he really thought was important. This is Jesus standing in front of all of us. And he's asking us about what is important to us. And this is what he's teaching his disciples. The very question shows that the man had everything upside down that should have been important to all of us. And Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus, our mediator. Jesus, our saviour is in his presence and rather he wants a dispute resolved over money over money and that's exactly the point that Jesus is making to his disciples after the man asked the questions he turns to his disciples and says take care take care and be on your guard against covetousness and here, in the New Testament, this word covetousness is the Greek word which has been translated as greed. It's been translated as greed. And it refers to a, to a strong desire to, to acquire more and more material possessions or to possess more things than other people have. It's exactly what Exodus 20 verse 17 is talking about. And notice here in this passage, the sin that Jesus identifies is not wealth, or it's not possessions of, of having things, but rather coveting these things. Covetousness, it's greed. Now 1 Timothy chapter 6 tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. Jesus never talks badly about money. He talks about an attitude towards money. 
Do we love money more than we love God? Do we trust money more than we trust God? That was the problem right here with this man. He had a covetous heart. And the Bible warns us against covetousness. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, Solomon, the author, the wisest man who ever lived, warns his sons. And he says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is an attitude of our hearts. People can't see that adjective, love, that verb, love. Do we love money? What is the attitude of our hearts? And the reason Jesus warned against covetousness and greed is because our life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. We we are not judged by how much we have on this earth. We don't take stock of of what we have and therefore decide who we are based on the amount of stuff that we have. Maybe that's how the world judges us. Maybe that's how the world evaluates us. Maybe that's how our families evaluate us. Wow, you have a nice job. Wow, you drive a, a nice car. Wow, look at the nice house that you live in. That's not how God evaluates us. It's not how God judges us. Our life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. Jesus is teaching that having more stuff does not add any more value to our lives. Really what He wants us to be is content. Content with what we have. Content with what He's given to us. Rather than desiring other things that you think will fill you and make you happy. That is what the world wants you to believe. That is what Satan wants you to believe. It is not what the Bible teaches. And this desire applies to all types of people. It applies to rich people. It applies to poor people. It doesn't matter what what class you are in. This desire is really a sin that goes across all demographics. The rich are tempted to want even more of what they already have, while the poor people are are tempted to want things that they don't have, that they think they should have. Every one of us needs to be on guard against covetousness that is in our hearts. Covetousness is a greedy desire for the things of this world, And Satan is the prince of this world. And what he offers us will not make us happy, will not make us content. And that's why we are being warned against this. There are not many people who will walk up to you and say, you know, I'm a covetous person. I don't think I've ever heard someone walk up to me and say, I'm constantly struggling with covetousness. Because that's, that's something that we hide in our hearts. But it's more common than we care to admit. It's much more common than we care to think about. Now, I don't think that there's any other sin that is more pervasive than covetousness. But it's still very subtle. And it's difficult to detect. If we are not willing 
to hear what God has to tell us. Covetousness is a dangerous sin because it leads to hypocrisy. And that's really what he warns his disciples about in this passage against hypocrisy. You know, we say that our hearts are set on the, the things above when in fact our desires are set on the things below. We say we, we long for Jesus and His return, but what we really want is that new model that's just come out. That, that car, that, that'll make my life so much better. And we try and hold these two things together and over time we become good at disguising our real hearts and pretending to be something or, or someone that we're not. And we turn into hypocrites. Covetousness is a dangerous sin because it's an enemy of grace. It's an enemy of grace. And when our hearts are set on what we don't have, but rather what we want, it takes our joy away from what really matters. Christ. It takes our joy away. We think He can't satisfy us. And we become like the Israelites. We start to grumble and complain with God's provisions, which He knows are good. When our hearts are set on something that we don't have, but we want, our pleasure, our joy is taken away. We become obsessed on those things of lesser value, lesser importance. My third point this morning is, from verse 16 to verse 21. And this is the parable that now that the Lord teaches to His disciples. The parable of, of covetousness. And Jesus tells a parable to strengthen his, his warning to guard ourselves against covetousness. And He says in verse 16, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. Now you may say, Lord, why would you have told these poor, relatively poor disciples a story about a fabulously wealthy man? Why, why would the disciples be worried about coveting here? I mean, the disciples aren't rich people. Why are you telling them a story now of a, of a rich person? Well, one of their temptations may have been to think, well, Lord, if, if I could only have what he had, then I'll be happy. If only I had what, what they have, then I'll be content. One of their temptations would be, well, a person like that wouldn't have any trouble with, with covetousness. They are, they are the disciples of Jesus. Surely they will be content. But the point that Jesus is making is whether we're rich or poor, we can all struggle with covetousness. We all do. And Jesus shows this man who has a lot but takes his joy from the stuff that he has and not from the riches of God. His joy is in the things of this world and not in God. And this farmer here in this parable, he represents all human beings. All human beings who are seduced by all types of greeds. Whether we're doctors, whether we're engineers, whether we're secretaries, whether we're professors, whether we're teachers, whether we're pilots, whether we're mechanic, whether we're students. God had blessed this farmer and he didn't recognize it. 
God had blessed the farm and he didn't recognize it. God had sent just the right amount of rain. He had sent the right amount of sunshine. Everything that the farmer needed for these crops to grow. He had kept the, the pests away. And the farmer had a massive crop. And the farmer did not cheat anyone, nor, nor did he abuse his employers. He was a wonderful success, this farmer. But he was not satisfied. This farmer was not satisfied. Joy and satisfaction do not come from an abundance of things. But the man did not recognize God's provision. He failed to see that it was God who had given everything that he had had. And his sense of security was in his possessions. He had a false sense of security. He didn't recognize the author who had provided all these things for him. Look what he says in verse 17. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. Now he thought building bigger barns was the, the best solution here. And it may not have been a sinful, a sinful solution. He was, being, he was being prudent. He was trying to be, be wise. It was a good idea. It wasn't a bad idea. But the danger lay in what was missing here. There was no thought of stewardship. There was no thought of, of stewardship. There was no understanding that he was a steward of what God had given to him. And that he was supposed to share these blessings with others. Rather than being the, the conduit, the river that flows with this water that God gives, he decided to be a dam and store up these possessions for himself. And that was the problem. That was the problem. The problem with this man is that he was selfish. He was self-absorbed. And all he could think of was himself. He had no thought for God. And he had no thought for other people. And the rich man went on and said in verse 19, I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink and be merry. It's a very selfish attitude. And we start to see his heart here being revealed. One commentator, R. Kent Hughes, he makes an interesting observation. He says, this is the only place in the Bible where retirement is spoken of. <laughs> and here it is in the context of disapproval. It is in the context of disapproval. Of course, the Bible recognizes aging and slowing down. But retiring to a life of self-indulgence finds no favor with God. A retirement that lives for self is unbiblical and immoral. Now think about that for a moment. That may go against everything that you have been taught to think. Retirement is a place where I relax, do nothing, enjoy all my hard-earned labors. Isn't that what the, the farmer is doing here? Isn't that exactly what the farmer is doing here? 
Where's the, the idea of stewardship? The things that God has given you is not so that you can build yourself bigger and better barns, but so that you could bless others. So that you could bless others. We had a family that used to visit us from the UK every year, a family from um, England. And they were retired ministers that had served the Lord for 40 years in England. But every year they would come to India and encourage the, the churches there. And they would go and preach. And this, this, this pastor, Pastor Richard, he would go and preach in the churches and encourage the, the work of the Lord there. And I asked him one day, how do you afford this? How are you able to do this? He wasn't supported. He was retired. He wasn't getting a great salary. And he told me, you know, one day somebody in their congregation um, died and gave him this, this beautiful house in, in England. And he said they'd never owned a house before. And they decided as a family that they were going to sell this house and they were going to buy a small little flat, enough for their needs, and they would use the, the rest of the, that money to go overseas every year to a church where they could encourage, where they could invest in, where they could support. I mean, what a wonderful way to, to spend your retirement. Rather than living your life collecting shells on a beach, as John Piper says. Now Phil Riken says the following about the rich man in this parable. He says the man thought that he had a storage problem. But what he really had was a spiritual problem. He was an atheist. I mean that is a very astute observation. I mean, this man had no thought of God. He had no thought of being a, a steward of what God had blessed him with. Perhaps he was an atheist. Perhaps he wanted nothing to do with God. Instead he wanted to build up his own empire, his own kingdom, make himself the king of his own castle. He lived his life as if God did not exist. His life revolved around himself. Maybe he went to church. Maybe he looked religious on the outside. He may have even given a tip to God every Sunday in church. But his life and his priorities and his actions did not reflect that he lived with a relationship with God. His actions were being revealed. His actions revealed his heart attitude. What about you this morning? Do you live a life for yourself? Do you live your life for God? What is your heart desire this morning? Listen to what God said to the rich man in verse 20. He says, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? God called him a fool because he lived his life as if there is no God. The man thought that he would live for many, many more years. But the very night God called his soul to meet with him. The rich man made all his plans for this world. 
But he did nothing to prepare himself for eternity. For eternity. Are we building our castles in the sand? Or are we investing in eternity, folks? Jesus ends his parable with a, with a practical application. Look at verse 21. He says, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. A fool lays up treasure for himself. A fool is not rich toward God. But the wise person lays up treasures in heaven and is rich toward God. What does it mean to be rich toward God? We are rich toward God when His glory is our highest goal. When His glory is our highest aim in this life. When His glory is what we want, what we are striving towards. When we want Him to be glorified in our lives. That is when we are rich towards God. Jesus is saying, be rich towards God. Be rich. That's the kind of wealth I want in my disciples. That's what wealth I want them to have. Value the riches of God above the, the things of this world. Value what you have in Christ. Value what Christ has done for you. Rather than valuing the new latest model that has come out on the market. The latest car. The latest cell phone. The latest computer gadgets. Value what you have in the gospel. Value the gospel. Value the effects of the gospel. Value what the gospel has done for you. Value the grace of God that has been poured out on your life. Value it more than this earthly stuff. Long for grace. And long for God. You know, the first step to overcoming this idolatry is to first recognize that the gifts that God gives all His children are richer than anything else that we could possibly purchase with our money. More valuable than the things of this world. Until we do that, we will be permanently vulnerable to covetousness. It is a lie that life does consist in the abundance of possessions. It does not. And that's what Satan wants us to believe. The truth is, life is to know Jesus Christ and to live for Him. The Bible says that Jesus is the life. The Scriptures tell us that true life is to know the only true God and His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that to live is Christ. One commentator tells a story of a conversation between an ambitious youth and an older man who was much wiser and had lived much longer. And the story goes, the young man says, I will learn my trade. And the older man says, and then? Well, I will set up a business. And the older man says, and then? Then he replies, I will make lots of money. The older man says, and then? Well, I suppose that I shall grow old and retire and, and live on my money. 
the older man then says, and then? The young man replies, well, I suppose that someday I will die. And then the older man asks, and then? What will happen when you die? When you stand before God? This tenth commandment is an issue of the heart. Is your heart right with God this morning? God not only forbids us from looking directly and longing upon something of our, of our neighbors and coveting for it, but also forbids us from even allowing a longing, a lust, a desire, a wrong desire, an unrighteous desire to come from within our hearts. And the only way we can overcome the sin is if we are delighting in God. If our heart is right with God. That's precisely what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Verse 12. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul had to learn to be content. And he's writing this letter from a prison cell. He's not writing it in a fancy palace, in a comfortable situation. He's in a, in a dirty dungeon. And he's telling us that he has learned to be content. He has learned to be content. It is a, a learned attitude. Where is your heart this morning? I cannot see through in your heart this morning. Do you have a covetous heart or do you have a content heart? Do you train your heart to be content with what God has given to you? Or is your heart longing and lusting after the things of this world? Paul learned that contentment does not come from our circumstances. Our circumstances will never make us happy, no matter how hard we work for it. It's what we do with our circumstances. Another Scottish Christian author and pastor by the name of G.K. Chesterton, he, he wrote this. He said, True contentment is a real, even an active virtue. Not only affirmative, but creative. It is the power of getting out of any situation all there is in it. True contentment is active. It is a learned attitude, just as the Apostle Paul is telling us. It's not something that lands on our head one day when, we, when we're brushing our teeth. It is something we have to be actively engaged in. Learning to love God and love the things that, that He has blessed us with. Spiritual things, not the things of this world that Satan wants us to enjoy. Maybe you've seen the, the film Cool Runnings. Cool Runnings, it's a comedy about the first ever Jamaican bobsled team. They went to the Olympics and John Candy starred as their coach. He was a former gold medalist who had become a hero to the Jamaican team. But later in the story, the coach's dark 
past surfaced. In an Olympics following his gold medal performance, this coach had broken the rules by, by weighting the, the US sled. And of course he brought disgrace on himself and his whole team. And one of the Jamaican bobsledders could not understand why anyone who had already won a gold medal would cheat. And finally he asks his coach why. And the coach replies, he says, I had to win. I learned something. If you are not happy without a gold medal, you won't be happy with it. If you're not happy without a gold medal, you won't be happy with it. He was discontent. He had a gold medal, but it wasn't enough. Contentment is not what we have or what we don't have. It's what we think about. It's what we're delighting. It's what we desire for. It's what we wish for. It's an issue of the heart. The God who loves us and made us for Himself is displeased to look into our hearts and discover that we are lusting after other things. That we are coveting other things. That we are desiring things that will perish. He doesn't want us to covet. He wants us to love Him. He wants us to be satisfied in Him. John Piper is famous for saying, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. That's contentment, folks. Are you satisfied in Christ this morning? Paul was content because he had learned to delight in Jesus. Do you delight in Christ? Paul was filled with joy, peace and contentment even while he was in a prison cell. This morning the riches and potential of Jesus Christ are available for us if you are willing to put your faith in Christ alone. Not in the things of this world, but in Christ alone. This is Jesus' desire for us. Remember, He died on the cross to make it possible for us to do this. 2 Corinthians tells us that He who was rich for our sakes became poor so that you through His poverty may become rich. Are you rich in Jesus this morning? Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning Lord exposed you know our hearts Father you know exactly what we're thinking you know exactly Lord our desires this morning we pray this morning that you would help us Lord to respond the way your spirit is directing us this morning Help us to be a people that are so in love with you, so captivated by Christ, so thankful for the grace of the gospel that we would not delight in the things of this world, that we would never enjoy what Satan tempts us with, that we would enjoy you. Help us, Lord, to be generous with these blessings that you've given to us we would be these conduits, Lord, that we would be faithful stewards rather than being selfish, rather than being vain, rather than being greedy, Lord, 
that we would display your mighty works to those people around us who are dying in essence by our generosity. They would see Christ in us through our loving and giving hearts. Father, I pray this morning that you would help us examine ourselves even as we partake in the Lord's table now. Make sure that our hearts are right with you. That we will not leave this morning without having met with you. So do your work, Father. Now we pray, even as we look at the the gospel, as we hold these elements in our hands, we pray, Father, that you would continue your sanctifying work in our hearts. In Jesus' name we ask.